All right. Well, everybody, it's good to see you tonight. And please remember those that we have out. The so many are sick and and uh, suffering. So let's keep them lifted up in our prayers. But if you would go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter twelve, and I'll be honest with you, um, be praying for me as I preach this because I'm. I'm this is one of those sermons where. Um, I don't know, it feels very heavy to me because uh, we're going to talk about, to be honest, we're going to talk about some of those verses that really has probably terrified everybody that has ever seriously read the Bible. Now there's probably been a lot of people that read these verses and they just skimmed over them and didn't mean anything to them. But there's been a lot of us here, I'm sure, that have probably read the verses that we're going to talk about and it sent a chill into our soul. Sometimes that's rightly so, and sometimes that's because of misunderstanding. But there's also a great deal to see about the character and nature of God in these verses. Uh, and to be honest, I battled back and forth about how I'm going to present this. I hope I, I do a good job. So please be praying for me as we do. But when we were last in Matthew chapter 12, we saw that Jesus proved to be the Messiah by fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 42. He was pronounced by the Father to be the one in whom He was well pleased. And He was so focused on His mission to save His people by His sacrificial death that He refused to be made merely an earthly king. Also, Jesus is the Savior that is so compassionate that He will not discard a smoldering wick and a bruised reed He will not break. The Spirit of God rested upon Christ and empowered Him during His ministry. And we see the proof of this in that Jesus went about, as we saw in verse 15 last week, healing those who were sick and afflicted. And as we continue tonight, we see the proof or more proof of the Holy Spirit's empowerment of Jesus' ministry. In verse 22, Matthew writes, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. As we've said before, uh, as impressive as healing sickness... And physical affliction was, Jesus' exorcism of demons was even more impressive. While afflictions and uh, sicknesses as well as demonic oppression are both horrible afflictions, there's a difference. Sickness doesn't have a will. And it wouldn't fight back. But demons would. If you look throughout Scripture, whenever Jesus would heal someone of blindness or lameness or leprosy, the sickness never stood up and said, now hold on here, let's have a conversation. They never negotiated. But demons often would. Demons would try to resist even Christ. They would scream out. And they would curse. And they would question. And they would even negotiate, saying, throw us in these pigs. But sickness wouldn't do that. And the difference between these two was not lost on the people. They recognized this show of power as proof that the Holy Spirit of God rested on Jesus. Verse 23 tells us, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the Son of David? Now we know the term Son of David was a reference to the coming Messiah. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 61 of this Messiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. And Jesus did just that. He proved to be the Messiah by setting free those who had been bound as the prisoners of Satan's demons. And the people caught on to this, and so did the Pharisees. In verse 24, 
It says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And we get a, a clue as to the real depth of this statement in the next verse. In verse 25, it says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, what they said was bad enough. But why they said it is what Jesus really had an issue with. And it's what we have to have an issue with because it's what God really has an issue with. Now, the question is, why would these men make such a statement? Um, I would like to go through it the same way that Matthew goes through it. We're just going to flesh it out just as Jesus did. And we'll get the answer toward the end of our study here. First, we need to see the corruption of their accusation. Then we can see the origin and the severity of it. So here, up to verse 24, having discerned their hearts, Jesus began showing how illogical these men were actually being. Again, in verse 25, it says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What Jesus pointed out right off the bat is that their accusation was a word in the original Greek known as stupid. Common sense would say that if Satan was destroying his own kingdom, we shouldn't oppose this. If this is the case, then it's obvious that Satan's kingdom will soon fall. Why would the Pharisees or anybody else oppose Jesus then? Why not let him continue? The kingdom of satanic oppression and pain would come to an end and everyone across the nations would be happier. And this argument of the Pharisees was silly because it was not founded in the truth. It made no logical sense. It made no biblical sense. It made no sense at all. The fact was that demon-possessed men were set free and the kingdom of Satan suffered loss here. On the one hand, even if this was done by Satan's own stupidity in fighting against himself, this was good for mankind. But this argument proved ridiculous because if we can comprehend the futility of such an action, of course someone as ancient and as clever as Satan would also understand this. Even a simpleton can see that Satan would not destroy his own kingdom. Jesus then uses logic to turn this accusation back on his accusers. He says in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now at this time, there were those in Judaism who claimed to be exorcists. You might recall the seven sons of Sceva from Acts 19. This wasn't an affirmation and it wasn't a denial that the pupils and followers of these Pharisees did or did not exercise demons. This wasn't the point. But if you ask the Pharisees by what power it was that their students supposedly cast out demons, would they say, by Satan? Thank you, Brother Rudy. That's the perfect response. Ha, ha, ha. Couldn't have chuckled better myself. That sounded like that was in German. You did a good job. No, they wouldn't say by Satan. They, they would, of course, claim it to be the power of God. Here was their problem. Even if the Pharisees admitted that Jesus had cast out the demons. 
They said in verse 24, this man cast out demons. They had already admitted that he had done this. It wasn't that they could backtrack and say he didn't cast out demons. They had accused him of casting out demons just by the wrong power. So if it is by God that their own pupils do the exact same thing, cast out demons, then how can they say that it's by Satan that Jesus does the same that their pupils do? Makes no sense. There's no reference. There's no logical reason that you could make the division between the two. It wouldn't hold water. They couldn't say that. Then Jesus continues by saying, Therefore, they, meaning your pupils, will be your judges. He put his accusers in a no-win situation. I think it's hilarious. If they stuck to the claim that their pupils exercised demons by the power of God, that was an admission that their students were greater than even them. And that was just something that these religious rulers would not put up with. It would have infuriated them beyond measure. They would have been totally indignant and never suffered such a statement to be uttered. Should they claim that their students did these things by the power of Satan, as they had accused Jesus, and thereby proved to be of Satan themselves and lose all standing with their followers? Or should they hold that their students did this by the power of God and were thereby greater than even themselves, making themselves obsolete in the eyes of Israel? It's a lose-lose situation. I tell you, you don't want to play chess with Jesus. This is a checkmate. There was no answer they could give that would get them out of hot water. So having totally disabled the arguments of these Pharisees, Jesus puts the issue to rest by saying in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus could prove that he cast out demons by the power of God, then the conversation was effectively over. He does so simply by using logic. He says in verse 29 as we continue on, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now in this parable of a question, it was obvious to all who heard it that day, Satan is the strong man. The goods of his house are those souls held under his evil power. And the one binding the strong man is, of course, Jesus. Everyone knows that a human is not as powerful as Satan. It's instinctive in our nature to believe that he's more powerful than us. Mankind has always had two instinctive responses to Satan. They either worship him or they fear him. One of the two. And both responses prove that we know that he's really stronger than we are. He's really more clever than we are. He'll, he is the roar, he's the one that goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is one with great power when compared to mere humans. So whoever would bind up Satan and his minions and then plunder his house, taking away all of his goods that he once possessed, must be greater than Satan. And he must be greater than man. He must be God. Only one could do this. Jesus had just proven to be exactly that by casting the devil out of this man. The kingdom of God had in fact come. One greater than Satan had just proven to be on the scene. He had just cast Satan out against his will and he could do nothing to stop it. He had plundered his goods. He had taken a soul back from his possession. He was greater and the kingdom of God had come. Now perhaps we can see the real problem. 
that Jesus saw when he examined the hearts of these men. The problem wasn't just that they were wrong. I want you to hear me. The problem was why they were wrong. This wasn't a problem of knowing the truth, but of choosing to despise it. And you can say, well, no one would ever despise the truth they know. I beg to differ. Yes, they do. You can know the truth and you can believe it in a way that is not saving, but is very condemning. Satan believes more truth about God than any of us here. But it's not life to him, is it? No, it's death. It's condemnation upon him. He's forgotten more truth about God than we'll ever know combined. At least this side of eternity. But it doesn't save him. So we see the rub of the matter when Jesus in verses 31 and 32 says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The Pharisees had really known for some time that Jesus was performing His works by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now at this point in Matthew 12, John the Baptist had been dead for some time. We saw that several, uh, several sessions ago. But prior to his death, in John chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, one of the most prominent Pharisees in the nation, knew that Jesus did these works by the works of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says to Jesus when he comes to him by night, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Who's the we? It's his fellow Pharisees. His constituents, his cohorts, the ones he studied with and talked with and ate supper with and probably had conversations with about what they must do with this upstart Nazarene carpenter who was calling them on the carpet about their hypocrisy. We know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the works that you do unless he come from God, unless God is with him. So the Pharisees knew that Jesus performed his works by the power of the Spirit of God, yet they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. These men were deliberately claiming the Spirit of God to be Satan, and that's blasphemy. Now also in this statement of Christ, we see the humility of Christ here. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, that being Jesus, will be forgiven. Why is this? That seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? In our culture, in our church culture, we make possibly the mistake of putting Christ higher than the Holy Spirit or the Father when really they are all one. We have one God made up of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Why is it then that Christ would say that you could say a word against Him? And it would be forgiven, but you couldn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit and it wouldn't be forgiven. Well, it's because in his humanity, Jesus understood that on his own, just him as a man, it would be more understandable that men did not believe him to be the son of God. On his own, just walking around as a man, it'd be very understandable that any of us. Imagine if he walked in today, just a man wearing work clothes from Wherever his place of employment would be. Maybe he would be dirty. Maybe he'd have grease under his fingernails. Maybe he wouldn't be highly educated. He just came in. He was just one of us. And he didn't do any miracles. He didn't have any wonders to claim or boast of. He's just one of us. It would be very hard for us to 
expect anyone to look at this person and say, well, that must be the Son of God. Well, why would you say that? The one sitting right beside him looks just as much the Son of God. Jesus understood that, but here's the issue. He wasn't alone. He wasn't by himself. It wasn't just a carpenter from Nazareth. The Holy Spirit bore witness that Jesus was the Messiah through the attesting works that Jesus performed. Often, the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. He's the one that has authored the Scriptures for us. He's the one that makes truth sink down into our hearts. He's the one that makes it dwell richly within us. He is the Spirit of truth. And when these men witnessed the clear evidence of the Spirit of truth in the life of Jesus testifying that He was the Messiah and there was no other. They knew it was the work of the Spirit of God, but they claimed it to be the power of Satan, the father of lies. And in so doing, they blasphemed. They slandered the very character and nature of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. They claimed the Spirit of truth to be the chief liar of all time. There could be no more contradictory statement about the character and nature of God. So when Matthew says that Jesus knew their thoughts, he was taking us into the hearts of these men. The biblical notion of the, of the heart isn't what we in Western culture sometimes think of. When we say the heart, we think Valentine's Day. We think I love you with all my heart. I, we think emotions and ooey-gooey and all these things. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible means the mind or the core of a man, the center of who you are, what you think, why you think that way. And yes, your emotions are tied to it, but often as a subsequent, not as an initiator in the things that you do. This is more than just being wrong. This is being deliberately wrong. This is apostasy. This is taking sides against God, to put it quite frankly. This is not a, a knowing issue as much as it is a heart issue. And it manifests itself two ways here in Scripture. And it manifests itself two ways in the world today. What Jesus saw in the hearts of these men was that they were bad trees all the way down to the root. He says in verses 33 through 37, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The first way that this manifests itself in the lives of people is by our words. A heart that is against God will tell off on itself with the words that it speaks. This may be as blatantly, this may be expressed as a blatantly atheistic statement out of an atheistic nature, or it may have a form of religion to it, but it will be against the truth of Scripture nonetheless. And the second way you can recognize a blasphemous heart is by a person's actions, what they do, the actions they commit. Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The point we must notice is that God affords nobody the notion of indifference toward him. There is no middle ground. There is no peaceful saddle that we can sit in where we're neither totally for God or totally against God, but we're weighing the balance one foot on one side and one foot on the other. 
God affords us no such place. They actively seek the promotion of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. Those who are for God and their hearts are busy about their father's business. Those who don't do this are scattering people away from him. There's no middle ground. These Pharisees were not indifferent toward Jesus. They hated him and they wanted to separate people from him at every turn. Now this leaves all of us in a very precarious situation. Does this mean that a person who has spoken against the gospel or Christ or has at times in the years past scattered others from Christ by what we've done or what we've said or the way we've lived or how we've influenced people younger than us or influential under us or if we've been indifferent toward Christ at any point in time, does that mean that we are apostate and doomed to hell forever? It's possible. It very well might. The problem is that just about everyone who has ever truly been born again has been to some degree against the gospel at some point. We lived in a way that did not bring people to Christ, but helped scatter them from Him. You remember the things you've done before you came to Christ? You didn't lead people to Christ. You led people away. You led people in the darkness. You followed people in the darkness and you had others following behind you. The words you said didn't honor God. The words you said defamed God. You say, well, I didn't use that kind of language. It doesn't have to be a particular word. It can be the, the nature of all your conversation. Let me ask this question. Before you came to Christ, was your language as honoring to God and worshipful to God and loving toward God as it is hopefully now? I believe the answer would be no. We cared not about God. We, we worshipped things we wanted to worship. We worshipped the quarterback that threw a perfect game on Sunday. And we worshipped the, the meal that our wife or husband fixed for us on Monday. And we worship the one who hit the car of our boss that we don't like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and paid him to do it again on Friday. That's what we did before. Did that lead people to Christ? No, that scattered people from Christ. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. You either gather with me or you scatter away from me. There's no middle ground. So that puts us all in a very precarious situation. So how do we know? If we are those blasphemers who are marked for hell or not. To answer that, we need to see why true blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All blasphemy is slander against the nature and character of God. When the Bible says blasphemy, it's not talking about how you talk about your neighbor. It's not saying that you talk bad about Brother Brian because he can't preach worth a lick. It's not saying you talk bad about Mike because he sits in the second row and his head shines and the glare distracts you. It's not saying that you talk about anybody else because they did this or don't did that or you like them or you don't like them or whatever. It's talking about things that you said that were directly slanderous against the character and nature of the God who created you and sustains you and provides for you. Still, Jesus tells us of the merciful, loving nature of God that shines forth even when we have done this. 
He tells us that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now, I want you to notice this because if not, you'll just look over it. Everyone who believes the gospel and repents of their sins will be forgiven, even of the horrible sin of blasphemy against God. If it were not true, he wouldn't make a point to say that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. That's coming from a very credible source, the one who will be doing the forgiving. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that which won't be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come, must be something very unique. I remember I've talked with people older than me and wiser than me, and they remembered that when I was a teenager, people in my generation apparently had started some silly carrying on when the internet first got big, where they would go online and they would make videos of themselves, and they would take the blasphemy challenge. And they would say, I blaspheme you, Holy Spirit, and post that garbage, defying God. Is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I think not. I don't think God is so overcome by the silliness of a 16-year-old boy or girl that that makes that person an apostate. The heart that it comes out of may prove that they are apostate. But that one statement is not eternally condemning and beyond all forgiveness Now, God's plan for saving mankind is that he sent his son, Jesus, to earth as a man to live a perfect life, die for the sins of his people and rise again from the dead so that men and women might believe on his name and be saved. And the way that God chose to reveal to us that Jesus was the Messiah and not just some lunatic who was killed by the state is that he ordained for Christ to work miracles by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. These miracles, catch this, were the factual evidence that bore witness of Jesus' deity. The problem for these Pharisees was that when they saw these signs and knew they were legitimate, they had the actual factual proof in front of them that proved that He was the Messiah of God. They intentionally, though they knew this meant He was the Messiah of God, they intentionally hardened their heart And said, no, that proves he's from Satan. They intentionally hardened their heart and rejected the only proof that could ever lead them to the Savior. They hardened their heart against the only thing that God would extend to them to convince them that salvation had come in the name of Christ Jesus. Here's the question. When you reject the only evidence that God will extend to prove who His Son is, when you reject that, what else can be done to bring you to repentance? Nothing. There's nothing left. People who did this would go into eternity having never believed having never repented, having hearts left completely against God. Now today, what does that look like? You say, Jesus isn't walking around here anymore today. Does that mean no one can blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Does that mean these verses don't mean anything to us? Have they lost their power in this age? No, not really. The situation has not changed. Today, we might not see the same miracles. And Jesus is not walking around physically among us as he once was. But Peter, referencing the transfiguration of Christ, 
Again, a testing miracle where God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Peter, referencing that mighty moment that he witnessed firsthand, he wrote this in 2 Peter 1. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the issue now is that men and women hear the truth produced by the Holy Spirit, still the Spirit of truth, and similarly call Him a liar by rejecting the gospel. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to intentionally call the truth of the Spirit a lie and call the Spirit of truth who convicts your hearts through the gospel to be a liar. And you do this until your heart cannot be convinced otherwise. And you can never truly repent. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that these verses have put many Christians into a fit of consternation and doubt and worry. Many have wondered if they're the ones who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Many have wondered and said, is it me? Have I done that in the past? And now no matter what I do, no matter what I claim to believe, is it real? Or am I deceiving myself? Because I said this back here. I did this back here. I lived this way back here. I've committed this horrible act or all these horrible acts. And now it's all piled up against me. And now I see there in my ways, but I'm beyond help. I'm beyond repair. Am I lost and doomed forever? No matter what. Well... Many have wondered that. If you are the one who is indifferent toward Jesus or even actively against Him in your heart, in your words, in your actions, then you better be afraid. Very well may be you. But when the Spirit of God is tapped into your heart over and over and over with the truth of the Gospel and you harden your heart against it, knowing it's true, but you don't care, you say, I don't care if it's true. I don't want to stop what I'm doing. I love my sin. I like who I am. I like what I've become, what I've made in my life. I don't want to change anything, not even for the Lord. If you're doing that, you're playing a very dangerous game. You're risking your eternal soul. However, for those who would tremble at this, I want to extend some comfort that our Lord provides on this issue. And I want, to, I want you to listen to me very carefully. Paul wrote this for those tender Christians who would throughout the ages quiver at the idea of having offended God so badly that they were eternally condemned and without hope. He said this. He said, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, now let's remember Paul for a moment. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. What did he do? Persecuted Christians. He not only spoke against Christ, not only spoke against the one whom the Holy Spirit had bore witness about, but he literally took the members of his body left on this planet. I'm not talking about his hands and feet. I'm talking about the people he redeemed, the body of Christ, the church. 
He went about with cursings and with papers from the religious rulers and he tracked them down like a bounty hunter and he grabbed them, bound them hand and foot, had them thrown in prison, had them beaten, even had them killed. It was so horrible and it was such an offense to God that on the road to Damascus, what did the Lord say to him through a light? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not my church? Why are you persecuting not my friends? Why are you persecuting me? It was literally in the heart and mind of God attacking, beating, offending, and murdering Jesus' very body. That's a wicked offense. Worse than probably anything anybody in this room has ever done. He goes on to say, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. You think you're a bad sinner? You weren't worse than Paul. I know there's been times in my life where I felt like I was worse than Paul. There have been times, Brother Chris, I read that text and I said, yeah, Paul was the foremost sinner till I showed up. I cornered the market. I ran him out of town. I had a senior share of the sin business. But Scripture is still true. His word stands above my own discernment of my own self. And His word, the word of God, stands above your examination of your own self. He came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, the question has always been just this. Do you believe? Do you trust in a pastuo faith kind of way? Do you trust the gospel in such a way that it changes who you are? You might have been one who before was an ignorant blasphemer. You might have strayed or strong people away from Christ by your actions, your words, your attitudes. You might have sinned grievously and you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway and you were good at it because you practiced it all the time. But are you different today? Have you been truly brought to faith and repentance? You see, if that's you, you couldn't possibly have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Because if you had, you'd not, been given the, you'd not been granted the opportunity to truly repent. If you believe that faith and repentance is something that you do, I don't know how you come to terms with this. But if you believe they're gifts from a merciful God who grants them to men and women, none of them deserve them ever then you find solace in your faith even today. Everyone who ever will go to heaven is one who was once a blasphemer of God in some way, but was redeemed and was changed and made a new creature. And they're saved only by the grace of God found in Christ Jesus. And everyone who will ever go to hell will die a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit because they will die claiming that what he said to be true of Christ was a lie. The commentator gives us some great comfort. I would like to read this. Here, 
In these verses is a gracious assurance of the pardon of all sin upon gospel terms. Do you remember when Christ said that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven? That's great assurance. We need to hang on to that. When the, when the times of your past that you're ashamed of and wouldn't like to tell anybody about come back to haunt you in the middle of the night. Even when you read the Bible and Satan would twist Scripture on you and, and cause it to be something that haunts you and steals away peace from you. You need to remember that one greater than he said, but every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. And how are they forgiven? On gospel terms. They're forgiven because he went to the cross. They're forgiven because He propitiated for those sins. Your sins, your blasphemies, your most horrible moments, none of them have been passed over by the Lord. They've been dealt with. You've been punished. Or as Paul would say, you have been crucified with Christ. You were crucified with Him on the cross because He had taken you into Himself as one of His. Your sin wasn't passed over. It was punished. Therefore, humble and, content, me, humble and conscientious believers... At times are tempted to think they have committed the impardonable sin. While those who have come the nearest to it seldom have any fear about it. We may be sure that those who indeed repent and believe the gospel have not committed this sin or any other of the same kind. For repentance and faith are the special gifts of God which he would not bestow on any man if he were determined never to pardon him. And those who fear they have committed this sin give good sign that they have not. The trembling, contrite sinner has the witness in himself that this is not the case. Or as David, the psalmist, once said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this evening. I pray that tonight you would move on our hearts. Father, if there would be anyone here that may still be one with a hard heart, that rejects your truth, that uh, believes your truth to be wrong or an error. Father, I pray that you'd give him mercy. I pray that you would move on their heart, that you'd break their heart, the hardness of their heart, that they've constructed by their own hands and their own techniques and their own devices, maybe for years. I pray that you'd break through those things in a moment like only you can. And that you'd grant faith and that you'd grant repentance. And that another soul would be ripped from the clutches of Satan. And brought into your kingdom of life. I pray that we'd see it. And your people would rejoice in it and glorify you over it. Because you deserve it. And Lord, for those of us who have been those sinners that deserve hell. That deserve to be cut off from you eternally. Father, we want to thank you so much for being a merciful, gracious God. Thank you for crashing in on our lives and doing what, what we couldn't ever ask you to do what we could never expect you to do but you did out of your own nature and out of your own capacity for mercy and love and pity for people like us thank you for choosing to adopt us lord for choosing to cover all our sin for choosing to punish our sin in christ jesus and for choosing to give us new life in his name Lord, we praise you and we worship you and we ask that you will keep us safe as we leave and that you'll bring us back together, ready to worship you next time, having praise on our lips for what you've done in the meantime. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.